Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl. It is Thursday, June 10th. On today's show, Colorado Avalanche and the emotionality of sports. Before we get there, this show is now available via app. You can find it on anything that you want. Search for the Beehive TV, uh, download it, help spread the word about that and about this show, and you will be given many blessings in life. Uh, We're going to start with gambling. Uh, Why gambling should be legal in Utah. I've lamented many times on this show about my inability to stop betting the Winnipeg Jets, a team that I went back to the well four consecutive times against the Montreal Canadiens, and they lost every time. And I despise them, and I'm glad that they're out of my life. The flip side of that is what the New York Islanders have been to me, uh, an absolute cash cow, a team that I can get as an underdog in every game. Last night I bet them at plus 125 against the Boston Bruins in game six. Uh, They've been between there and plus 170 when they're playing in Boston, and they just cash continually, continually. So Winnipeg, they're the bane of my existence. The New York Islanders, they've somehow risen up the charts to be my favorite gambling team currently in the playoffs, which is very funny if you know me, because for the last few years, I lament time and again how much I despise watching the Islanders, and I don't enjoy their style of hockey. They're just a bunch of grinders, and they limit chances on both ends, and they try to take a game into overtime and win 1-0 or 2-1. And now, because I've embraced them from a gambling perspective, I basically want to go and buy a New York Islanders jersey. So, why gambling should be legal in Utah? Because it will remind you how easy it is to flip-flop on the things you love. And now, a word from our sponsor. With your masquerading and you Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Today is a day of reflection for me. Uh, Yesterday was about... The Utah Jazz, Los Angeles Clippers game one, the emotionality of sports on the really positive side of the spectrum. I was there in that crowd, uh, and it was truly an incredible moment to be a part of, especially in that second half as Donovan Mitchell gets going uh, and the Jazz are scratching and clawing their way back into the game and then taking the lead. It was a really uh, meaningful night on the pleasurable side of why sports are cool, uh, and why fans like myself seek out this emotion uh, in something that seems strange and insignificant, but because we know that it's there, uh, we continually go back to the well. And I teased that today's episode would be about the same thing uh, on the other side of the spectrum, because the emotionality of sports taps into everything. You know, it's an all-encompassing sphere. Uh, and pleasure demands pain, pain demands pleasure, that kind of stuff. There's the highs, there's the lows. Uh, And I spoke yesterday about how strange it was for me being in the crowd because simultaneous to this incredible second half, my favorite hockey team, the Colorado Avalanche, were going down in overtime of Game 5 against the Vegas Golden Knights to fall down 3-2 in the series. And their season is on the brink with Game 6 looming tonight in Vegas. So now is a a time for reflection, 
because this is kind of how I process emotion uh, and really how I process emotion that's tied into sports. Uh, this really strange idea that how can this same thing make me feel this and this, you know, these two polar opposites. So I try to make sense of all that. Uh, and that's what yesterday's show was about. And that's what today's show is about. How can I feel such a high from this Utah Jazz game at the same time that I'm feeling such a low from this Colorado Avalanche game that I then watch, uh, you know, yesterday after I record the show and I feel even lower because then I'm watching and I'm getting the full story of the game and I'm watching Colorado dominate play and get chance after chance after chance and make three uh, just boneheaded plays that set up all three of Vegas's goals. And then I feel even sadder uh, about what before was just me flipping on my phone and saying, what's the score? What's the score? What's the score? And watching that change from 2-2 in overtime to 3-2 final slash overtime Vegas is the winner. Uh, yesterday was another kind of paragraph within the story. Um, so sports are interesting because I always come back to the same place. It's mostly lows uh, and you experience those over and over in the hope that it becomes that high, you know, uh, the, the ultimate high being your team won the championship, but you can get it without getting to the ultimate destination. As we saw yesterday in game one of jazz Clippers, uh, you seek that stuff out and it makes those lows, uh, not as low in retrospect, but when you're in the moment, uh, it's a lot harder to comprehend and process what's going on. But I come back to the same place because as I said yesterday, and as I'll always say, when you feel uh, this much passion uh, and you feel like this, uh, you, you always will come back to that source. Uh, that's what I believe life is about. It's that idea. It's living life to the fullest extent through passion and emotion. I want to read uh, an excerpt from a poem because, again, this is a day of reflection. And I want to just talk about what it means when things uh, are coming to an end or have come to an end. So this is from Jack Gilbert, who's a very famous poet. And he wrote a poem called Failing and Flying that I'm going to read part of it to set the stage for further discussion. Everyone forgets the Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end. Or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her. The stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation. The gentleness in her like antelope standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming. The sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that. Listen to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? So we'll stop there. Because um, it's a good point to pause and think about this idea of, of what does it mean when something is coming to an end. 
And for me, it's really easy to, it's not really easy, but it's a lot easier to look back fondly in retrospect and, and, and extract all of the positive things that came about from that relationship or that season or, or whatever it may be. But it's significantly harder to do in the moment because that's when the negativity uh, is at its most prevalent. And so I try to go and fight against that because that's just a way that I want to try and live my life um, by seeking out good things, even in the present of these low moments. You know, I always go and try to make it a point when I golf. If I'm playing terribly, uh, you are not ever in a good emotional place when that's happening. Uh, if, if you're a, an avid golfer and you want to do well, which I am. And, and I try to go out of my way when that's happening to recognize uh, any good things that are going on around me. You know, someone else makes a birdie. It's as simple as saying, hey, that was really good. Nicely played hole or they play a good round and it's going out of my way rather than storming off and being angry that I shot uh, an 82 that day. It's going, hey, great round, 69. Oh, awesome. Like, good for you. Uh, congratulations. And, and then I go home and I say, all right, tomorrow that'll be me. Uh, it's just something that I try to incorporate as a way of uh, outlasting and understanding that even within low moments, there's positivity that can be found there. It's just, I kind of got to search it out. And I'm not perfect at doing that, um, but it's something that I try to do. So I think about this poem from Jack Gilbert, you know, and I think about uh, relationships in general, just this gradual dissolution that, that can occur. Something that's there, uh, and then you sense it dissolving, and then it's not. And it's that same process that uh, I'm speaking about, that I try to go through. You know, the first reaction to that, it's usually, it's hurt, it's anger, it's a feeling of betrayal. It's all the negativity that comes into being a part of a relationship with somebody and then feeling it go away. And that's never a fun experience. So part of that, uh, I try to go through the same process. Because again, that's how I want to try and live my life. Uh, I got to dig deeper. So even within the moment, uh, when this is happening, I go, okay, uh, this is ending, but... I know that what I had with this woman uh, was very special. And it was built up over the course of years and years. Uh, and we shared emotional and mental and physical intimacy. Uh, all those things which are really special parts of the human experience. And are easier to look back in retrospect uh, when you're years removed from kind of that pain and anger and feeling of betrayal and in the moment, I go, no, uh, I get that things aren't as good right now, and it, this is dissolving, and it's going away. And this thing that I, I want to be a part of my life, it's not going to be there anymore. But there were so many good things about this that it's impossible for anything bad to outweigh that. That's what I want to, that's the way that I want to think. That's the way that I want to process emotion. Um, it's recognizing all of these tiny blips that would seem insignificant to an outsider. But for me and for her, carry really profound weight and meaning. 
because we were there and we shared those things together. Uh, that stuff is really cool. It can be as simple as just seeing, you know, somebody's hair waving on the golf course. I see a woman's hair wave on the golf course in the wind. And I go, that reminds me, you know, that reminds me of a, a time and a place that's past where her and I were out at a different golf course and we were hitting range balls and it was on this perfect summer night and we're hitting directly into a setting sun. It's like you've staged it for a movie almost. And all of the colors of the entire golf course are just really magnified in this setting. Uh, and the wind's coming in and her hair's flapping there. And that's what it reminds me of. It's a tiny blip. Something that if you just saw, you would think it's insignificant. But it's a reminder of that time, of the positivity uh, that can never be outweighed by the bad. And those things pile up. There's a million, you know, in every relationship. I see a heavy downpour of rain and I go, that reminds me. You know, there's a time when we got stuck in a heavy downpour when we were out at a high school track and we hit underneath a, a tiny awning and this rain is coming down a million miles an hour, two feet in front of our faces and we just sit there and we laugh and we talk and we wait out the storm. That's another moment. Uh, it's a reminder of that positivity, of those special things that you share uh, with people and places and things that you love. Um, it's as simple as seeing a tree just waving and go, that reminds me, you know, it's, it's everything. There's so many things. I see a tree and I go, that reminds me of a night. Uh, we came back from a wedding and we had had a few drinks and we pause on the back porch and it's this great black void that can only exist in night, uh, where there's not a lot of stars out and the moon's small. And so we're just there and we're kissing on the back porch and I can feel, her mouth and her tongue, and, and I can hear this tree rustling, and I open my eyes, and it's there just shifting in the night. It's that kind of stuff. Uh, everybody knows it, and it's different for each person. It's those tiny blips that if I saw in your relationship, I would go, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. But if you're there, if you're a part of it, uh, it means everything. And so I think about that, and I think about this poem, and I go, how can I say that that failed, right? This thing that ends in sadness or it ends badly or it ends in a way that I don't want or she doesn't want or any of that stuff. Uh, how can I say that that failed when there's so much meaningful things that I can extract from it? So we circle back to sports, uh, another area that I have a lot of passion and emotion invested in. And I think back to the Colorado Avalanche, who are not done yet. Um, but this is the easiest place for me to reflect before the end occurs, if it occurs, but when I can kind of sense that this might not be uh, the time that I thought it was going to be. This might not be the year. So they're down 3-2 with game six tonight, and I'm going to be in the same position that I was on Tuesday. I'll be up at Vivint Smart Home. I'll be inside of that uh, just emotional cacophony of people. Uh, it's going to be really fun there. And an hour before the Jazz game starts, the puck will drop at T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. And so I'll be following along on my phone again and watching the game tomorrow. And I will be sitting there just 
hoping with every fiber of my being that this is not the end. You know, that the Avs can win tomorrow night and we can head to a game seven on Saturday in an emotional <laughs> night that will probably be the end of me as all game sevens in the Stanley Cup playoffs are when the Avalanche are involved. Uh, but the defiant part of me, the hopeful part of me, it realizes that teams have to be put in a position like this to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, it's never an easy ride. Think back to the last time the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in 2001. Stanley Cup Finals against the New Jersey Devils, a team that had won Stanley Cups up to that point, uh, winning pedigree. And it's a 2-2 series. Devils come into Colorado and win Game 5. So it's 3-2 going back to New Jersey. Chance to close out, hoist the Stanley Cup on home ice uh, in Ray Bork's final season for the Avalanche. And I remember at that moment, I was like, this can't be happening again. And it didn't. Adam Foote scores a goal in the first period. Patrick Waugh pitches a shutout. Head back to Colorado for Game 7 in probably the favorite hockey game of my life. And Colorado wins. Uh, And every Stanley Cup team has that story. The story of our backs were completely against the wall. And we overcame it because that's what you have to do within the playoffs. It's how you win a Stanley Cup. It's never easy. Uh, You go through injuries. You go through overtime losses. You go through bad luck. You go through hot goaltenders. You go through everything. Uh, And at the end, if you're lucky and if you're good, then you hoist the Stanley Cup. So that's the hopeful part of me because I recorded an entire episode before the playoffs began about this specific team and how gifted they are and how much belief I have in their ability to win a Stanley Cup. And despite the fact that they're now down 3-2, there's still the part of me that exists that says, I've seen the very best of this team, and I know that the very best of this team is championship quality. Uh, So they got to tap into that tonight, and they got to tap into that again in Game 7. And if they do both those things, then they got to tap into that against Montreal and against the winner of Tampa Bay and the New York Islanders. Uh, None of these things will be easy, but I do believe that there's a world that exists where those things happen. The other side is the fatalistic side of me who has watched this series and who after game three ended uh, just had this really unsettled feeling in my bones that every hockey fan, they know, they know what it feels like because almost every year your team loses. And so you build up this scar tissue of how your team loses in a playoff series. And it comes down to just really small, strange things that will drive you insane. They'll make you tear your hair out. They'll take years off your life if you watch them all. Because you can go back and say, oh my gosh, Colorado's up 2-0 in this series. They run Vegas off the ice in game one. They get outplayed badly in game two, but Drew Bauer's awesome in net. Miko Rantanen scores an overtime winner. 2-0 going back to Vegas. The Avs get outplayed badly again in Game 3. Just an onslaught from Vegas. They possess the puck, and Grubauer is incredible again. And the Avalanche are up by a goal. Into the third period, there's eight minutes to go. They're up 2-0 in the series with a one-goal lead in the third period. And just these tiny moments that, you know, I remember because I watched the games and they stick out as just these points that could have gone one way or the other and they didn't necessarily go in Colorado's way, which Vegas would be saying the same thing if they were down. Um, JT Comfort comes into the zone on a two-on-one, up by one. He waits, he hesitates, he feeds the puck to Brandon Saad, who's in the high slot, and he rips a shot by Fleury, drills the post, bangs out. 
Uh, could have been a two-goal lead. Two minutes later, Jonathan Marshashow banks a puck in off the back of Grubauer. It's a tie game. Uh, less than a minute later, Max Pacioretty gets a deflection on a shot from the point from, I believe, Nick Holden. And the Avs lose. It's 2-1. And now I get that really uneasy feeling. Because if you know anything about hockey, you know when you have a chance to put a team away, you got to put them away. Because the longer a series goes on, the more it becomes this randomized part that will make you tear your hair out, that will take years off your life. And game four, Vegas dominates possession for the third straight game. Uh, and this one, they just steamroll Colorado. It's 2-2 going back to Colorado. And I have a very unsettled feeling because for the first time all season, I've watched Colorado be dominated uh, in a way that they have done to every team in their path throughout the season, including Vegas, uh, multiple times. And I'm finally confronting, is this Vegas team, it's a 2-2 series at the time, but is this Vegas team actually better than Colorado? A thing that I would have thought was impossible coming into the playoffs. Uh, And then game five happens, and Colorado brings a a quality effort. They're flying around, and they're playing avalanche style of hockey that I've loved throughout this season. They're getting chances. uh, (laughs) And they're up 2-0 going into the third period. Just protect a two-goal lead, and you're good to go. And instead, Andre Burakovsky makes a terrible offensive zone or defensive zone play, turns it over. Marsha Show scores. It's now 2-1. Uh, three minutes later, Avs come into the offensive zone on a four-on-two. Landis Cog makes a strange pass between JT Comfort and Ryan Graves. Bounces off him, comes back the other way. Vegas scores. Uh, it's 2-2. Third period, it's back and forth. It's back and forth. Uh, in, in watching it yesterday, I, I'm continually struck by just the separation between winning and losing within hockey is nothing. It's zero. Miko Rantanen drills a post in that period. Uh, Tyson Jost is right there in front with five minutes to go. Perfect opportunity. Doesn't score. Hits off the very fringe of Marc-Andre Fleury's shoulder and deflects right past the net. Overtime comes. JT Comfer has a wide open rebound in front of the net. Ten seconds in uh, with half the net there existing. And he shoots it right back into Fleury, who's just there right into his gut. Uh, And 40 seconds after that, Ryan Graves... He makes just one of those plays that unfortunately Ryan Graves makes in the offensive zone. He shoots the puck into a fender, shoots it again, uh, doesn't react, actually moves forward. Vegas now has the puck. They toss to Mark Stone behind him, who's going in alone, uh, and he rips a wrister over Philip Grubauer's glove. It's 3-2 Vegas. It's going back with a chance to close it out in front of a max capacity crowd, uh, a place where the prior two games that Colorado has played there in this playoffs, Vegas has dominated possession, absolutely dominated. So the fatalistic side of me can sense it coming on. Uh, That's why this moment of reflection occurs for me, because if the Avs lose tonight, or if they lose in game seven, or if they lose at a different point in these playoffs, then this team, this version of this team, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, the core will remain there. You'll still have McKinnon and Rantanen and Kel McCarr and these stars that they're locking down that they want to be a part of their roster moving forward. But all of these side pieces that comprise a team, uh, these tiny blips, these things on the margins that might not be as meaningful to people who watch hockey and are fans of other teams, but when you follow that team, 
they're very meaningful to you, uh, those things will be rearranged. So this specific iteration doesn't exist once the season is over. Um, but I've watched all of this Colorado Avalanche season. And so I go back to the theme of that poem, of what I was talking about re- relationships with uh, this emotionality of sports. And I go, I wish that this team would win a Stanley Cup. I hope they do. But how can I say this failed when I've watched it? Um, and I've gotten so much joy from seeing this Avalanche team be pieced together and come from where it was four years ago, the absolute literal worst team in hockey, to this high-flying fast-paced, incredibly fun team with stars. Uh, McKinnon, I mentioned, one of the greatest forwards on planet Earth. Makar, one of the greatest defensemen on planet Earth. Mikko Rantanen, one of the best wings in hockey. Landis Cog uh, formed that three-headed monster top line. Those things jump out, but as I reflect, I, you know, I go down the list and there's just so many more things that go into a season. It's trading for Devontae's and watching him play all season and just go, how did we trade two second-round picks for a defenseman that is this good, who seamlessly slid onto the top pairing and seamlessly fit with the style of play that Colorado brings to the table? How did we get this guy? He's incredibly fun to watch. Uh, Seeing Sam Girard, a person who we traded for a couple years back as part of the Matt Duchesne trade, it's seeing him grow as a defenseman and turn into a third First-pairing quality defenseman, uh, which has given Colorado a really big advantage in how they've been so good because they have him and they have Taze and they have Makar. Uh, and, and I go into the depth pieces on the forward unit. Uh, Tyson Jost comes to mind. Uh, former high draft pick who looked like a bust and who has just somehow hacked out a role on this team and turned into a really enjoyable and integral piece. Uh, relentless Four checker, relentless back checker, in the right place all the time, awesome penalty killer. So all those little marginal things that you recognize when they're on your team. And you don't recognize them as much when you're watching other teams because it takes a lot more nuance and repetition to understand what that specific player does. Uh, you don't watch Tyson Jost one time and think this player is incredible. You watch him over the course of this season and in these playoffs as he steps into the vacate or the the role that Nazem Kadri has vacated with his suspension, and you go, this is a really enjoyable and fun hockey player. Uh, Valeri Nachushkin, same thing, just relentless on the forecheck, on the backcheck. Uh, Brandon Saad, who they traded for in the offseason, who they'll have a decision to make with him in the offseason, uh, who's been godsend in the playoffs. He brings that Stanley Cup winning pedigree from Chicago where he won two cups. He scores a goal seemingly in every game of these playoffs. He's just... He's, he's the stereotype of that playoff-style player. He's just always in the right place. And he always has the puck on his stick, and he knows where to put it uh, in the net. So many players, as I go down this roster, I could go on and on. I could talk about literally every person who's stepped onto the ice this year for Colorado. Um, and it just never really ends. And because I've watched all that, and because I'm here reflecting on it, even if the Avs lose tonight, it's easier for me to say it now before the end has occurred, you know? How could I call this a failure? Uh, How could I look at something that has brought me so much joy in a negative light? Um, That's just the way that I want to process the emotionality of sports. That's what I try to do. And again, I'm not perfect at it. Uh, 
And if the Avs go down tonight or if they go down in game seven or at a later time, like that sting always exists really, really, really hard in hockey, especially when I believe that my team could actually win the Stanley Cup. But, you know, I, I, I go back to the start of this episode. How can the same thing make me feel like this and like this? The positive, the negative, the highs, the lows, the pleasure, the pain, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and it's why I always come back. You can't really have one without the other. Uh, so you lean into both. You lean into something that you feel this about. That's why I always come back to uh, all these things that I've talked about within this episode. Um, investing passion and emotion into people. Investing passion and emotion into sports, into my favorite hockey team, into my favorite football team or basketball team. Um, it, it, because it's, in my opinion, it's experiencing life to the fullest extent. You can always sit on the sidelines and not really want to invest yourself because you know that there are going to be a lot of lows that go along with that. You do it because uh, it, it, it's just meaningful. Um, it's finding that beauty in the stories that no one sees, these tiny blips, these marginal moments, or the stories that nobody remembers as time fades and goes on. Um, it's about finding a place to invest my passion and believing that someday that's going to pay off. But in the meantime, uh, I can savor all of these small things uh, and these marginal moments that, com that comprise the things that I love. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.